and welcome to the fourth episode of the How to Be Wise podcast with your hosts Shauna and Sam. Today we are interviewing another Queen's University professor, Dr. Meunier. She's an assistant professor in the chemical engineering department whose research is focused on toxicity of contaminants in soil and risk assessment on environmental and human health. Dr. Meunier discussed her experience from her undergraduate degree to getting PhD in a male-dominated school as well as her love for teaching. This was an amazing interview and we cannot wait for you to hear it. Here it is. Thank you very much for joining us today. First day of spring it looks like. Mm -hmm. Yes, so tell us a little bit about uh, yourself and your current position at Queen's. Uh, so I joined Queen's in September 2017, and I am currently an assistant professor in the Department of Chemical Engineering. I looked up a little bit on your background, and I did also take a class with you, like I said, a few years ago. Um, so I know you did your undergraduate degree in mechanical engineering um, at the Royal Military College here in Kingston. That's correct. So I'm just wondering, what was your experience like being a woman studying in engineering and also being in a male-dominated school? RMC is always a, a particular and different university. It still is today. Mm -hmm. um, and when I was a student, it was only a few years after women were first allowed to mm. enroll in military college and to work uh, in various uh, professions within the military. And my experience, of course, was, was that of uh, kind of a period of adjustments where of course, it was an adjustment for me, yeah. <laughs> uh, but it was mostly, I think, an adjustment for the entire community that was just uh, coming to terms with uh, how this might work. How mm -hmm. do we do gender integration? What are the types of big questions and small things that might occur? Mm -hmm. And uh, no, in, in terms of military training, some of the things were absolutely hilarious because <laughs> we needed to figure out, you know, what kind of bra do women wear that might actually work with uniforms? Mm -hmm. Things that yeah. for no, for good reasons, men had never even thought of. Mm -hmm. uh, and in the classroom, it was a little bit like that also. Um, mm -hmm. I did not feel that I was very different from the other students. Um, however, being in a group where mostly males uh, are around you, you feel a little bit like in a fishbowl at times mm -hmm. because maybe some of your reactions or some of your choices or decisions are not necessarily perceived as the decision that you make as an individual, but rather as a representation mm. of your gender. Right. And and sometimes this can be a little intimidating because mm -hmm. um, you have to think twice before you do something because it might be perceived wrongly. Yeah. So there, there are a number of, of instances where it, it's been an adjustment. Yeah. Uh, I was quite um, happy with uh, the way my training went. I thought that uh, most of my colleagues were awesome and we were just Great. basically all engineering students, you no know, struggling and doing our best, and yeah. and uh, I really enjoyed the the group work and the camaraderie 
mm-hmm. and the fact that uh, I can really count on still today um, a lot of my colleagues from my undergrad. So wow. it's, it's been a very, very nice experience. Yeah. And you actually continue to study at RMC doing your master's and PhD there. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I left RMC, but for some reason I kept coming back. <laughs> uh, and so I left RMC. I graduated from my undergrad in 1989 and then went to work and uh, did a few different uh, jobs. I was employed in the military as an aerospace engineer, so I was working with mm-hmm. aircraft and different projects. And then in 1993, I had the opportunity to um, study a master's degree. So I obtained a scholarship to come back to RMC. Wow. Uh, and at the time, I thought I would be at RMC for maybe a year and a half to two years, just mm-hmm. a, enough time to complete my master's. Uh, and during that time, there was a change in government, change in uh, spending priorities, and mm. the project for which I was actually doing my master's uh, disappeared. The project oh. was cancelled. And uh, the job that was associated with that project also disappeared. Mm -hmm. So I was still in the military and uh, looking for a job. And my department head said, look, you should uh, stay and teach, which was something I had never thought of doing. (laughs) And um, so I said, yeah, sure, I'll try that. And uh, fell in love with teaching. And so I ended up uh, staying at RMC a little bit longer than just my master's. And I spent another uh, four years uh, teaching and also working as a, um, uh, it's called a squadron commander position, where mm-hmm. as an officer, you're responsible for the military training of the uh, of a group of officer cadets uh, that are part of the, uh, the RMC undergrad uh, program. And after that, I went and did other jobs in the military mm-hmm. and... Um, after a while, it was time to actually leave the military because kind of the balance of um, life and work and kids and my husband's job was right. becoming very difficult to manage. Mm-hmm. Uh, military members move a lot. Yeah. And uh, my next uh, posting would have been outside of Ontario, uh, which would not be compatible with mm-hmm. uh, the, the work that my husband was doing because he can't move. So I actually very reluctantly uh, submitted my release and because uh, mm-hmm. I loved my job in the military. Wow. And, uh, and after that, it was kind of, okay, so I'm uh, 36 years old um, and I'm retired. Mm-hmm. Uh, what now? Yeah. <laughs> so, so I decided to go back to school. And what brought you to Queen's? Um, well, I actually started my PhD here at Queen's. Okay. And um, what I wanted to study after shopping for a good um, connection with a supervisor, I was always interested in environmental issues. Mm-hmm. And I really wanted to develop capabilities in that field. And so I, I needed a project that was environmentally motivated. Mm-hmm. And so I started working on um, a concept called bioaccessibility. And Mm. so if you've taken my class, you've probably heard me Mm. talking about it. Uh, When you have a contaminant in any environment, um, let's say you have a contaminant in soil, you might come into contact with that contaminant. Mm -hmm. And let's say you ingest it. What happens? Is the entire dose that you ingested going to cause issues and may be toxic to you or reach your organs? Mm -hmm. Or are you simply going to digest it? It will move through your digestive tract and then it's just going to be excreted and it poses no harm. And so the concept of bioaccessibility is looking at the fraction of that dose that came into your body that may actually cause harm. Mm -hmm. And when that fraction is very low, what you can do is mitigate the risks that are associated with the contact with the contaminant. 
And in some cases, it means that if the concentrations of a contaminant in a polluted environment Mm -hmm. are low enough that they won't pose harm, it's probably better to just leave it there Mm -hmm. than to spend a lot of money and to disturb the environment by Mm -hmm. trying to clean it up. Uh, So that's basically the idea behind the bioaccessibility because there's only so many dollars available Mm -hmm. to remediate. Mm -hmm. And we want to make sure that those dollars are spent where they're really needed. Mm -hmm. And we also want to protect environments that might have adapted to a small amount of disturbance, a small amount of contamination, but are doing fine. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And we're still doing a lot of that work now because... There is no end of contaminated sites and uh, new material that have to be assessed. Um, And so it's still part of what I do in my research. And and I think I might have a little bit of work for the next few centuries (laughs) on that topic. (laughs) That's so interesting. I'm currently um, taking bioremediation, actually. With Dr. Ramsey? Yes, Mm -hmm. and I find it so interesting. I'm so interested in possibly pursuing a career in like the environmental engineering fields as well. So There's a lot of work. Wonderful. Yes. Mm-hmm. That's so good to hear. Um, while you were in academia or um, out in the field, did you have a mentor or someone to look up to during those times? I have many mentors. Mm-hmm. And um, when I was actually when I was an undergrad, the first person that I really recognized as a, as a mentor, his name is Fred Lotus, and Fred is long retired now. Mm-hmm. Uh, Fred was a accident investigator. And uh, I met him during the summer between my second and third year of undergrad. And during that summer, uh, I was his assistant. Uh, I knew nothing about accident investigation, and I learned so much during that summer, primarily because Fred could explain things so very clearly Mm. and also put in perspective in terms of what it means you know sometimes you get a number you get a result Mm -hmm. and you really don't have much experience yet so it's difficult to put kind of the meaning behind this Mm -hmm. and uh, and Fred was really very good at figuring things out kind of looking beyond the numbers and then we kept in touch and he's a very nice person to kind of bounce ideas off and then figure out you know what I should be working on next so that was my first mentor and then throughout my career I had several really good technicians, uh, very supportive people. And uh, more recently uh, at RMC, and she's also just retired, actually the the only female mentor that I've ever had is um, wow. Dr. Kathy Krieber. She was uh, one of the first, if not the first, uh, woman to be hired at the Royal Military College as a professor. Wow. And uh, when I came back to do my PhD, because I had switched between Queens and, mm-hmm. and RMC, it was just because of the funding and different projects. Dr. Krieber was then the department head. So she was always providing wise and almost kind of engineering motherly advice. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Uh, and she was also on my PhD um, examination committee. So mm-hmm. she's, she's been very supportive. And then when I was hired at Queen's, that was very funny. The new faculty that are hired are normally assigned a mentor, mm-hmm. like somebody that might be in a compatible research right. uh, field or somebody that might be able to help you, you know, navigate the administration and the, yeah. all the things you need to figure out when you're in a new job. I had been teaching here at Queen's as a adjunct faculty for several years, so mm-hmm. I got to know most of the uh, uh, faculty and the staff at uh, the chemical engineering department. And then when I was hired 
I did not have a mentor. And I only figured this out actually uh, the past couple of months because now I am on a committee to hire new faculty right. members. And, and apparently new faculty are assigned mentors. <laughs> so so I, went, I went back to my department head and I was joking with him saying, well, you know, um, where's my mentor? Yeah. And he looked at me, he says, you've got about 17 of them really because I already knew the staff there. Mm. And it's true that you end up no, going to this person because they know something about uh, nanoparticles. Mm-hmm. Or you go see this person because they've been very successful at you know, their research lab set up and mm-hmm. things like that. So, so yes, I have many mentors yeah. and people to bug and mm-hmm. ask questions. Yeah. Thanks. Um, I also have a question um, going back a bit. You said that women weren't really allowed to RMC. Um, is there really, like, is there a specific reason why they banned women? Or is it just a oh, natural thing that Yeah, it was happened? it was not that women were banned. It's just that we never even thought of putting women there. Mm-hmm. Um, up until 1980, actually, there were only men at uh, the Royal Military College. Wow. Mm-hmm. And it's just part of, I guess, societal evolution. The same way that today, nobody is going to question your right to vote. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that was not particularly controversial a century ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's something similar to this. Even in 19... So I, I joined in 1984. And uh, there were only a certain number of jobs that were open to women. Mm-hmm. Uh, so back then, the combat arms were still not yeah. uh, open. And quite a few of the um, so-called operational uh, positions were not open to women. Mm. And then around 1988, I believe, the um, the rules started to change and the implementation of uh, you know, the human rights and all of the various you know, equity and, and uh, gender integration issues mm-hmm. uh, kind of you know, broke those barriers uh, one after the other. The, uh, the field of uh, aerospace engineering was typically not open to to women, but it was one of the first where mm-hmm. women could actually start working. Wow. And frankly, when you think about it, the the job of a engineer is uh, really not dependent on whether you're a man or a woman. Mm-hmm. There are very few jobs actually that would require a specific gender that I can't really think of one. <laughs> um, but it has to do with, um, I guess, societal perception. Yeah. For sure. Um, back on what you were saying about mentors, and you had one that was female, um, and then you've had so many over the years, obviously. Mm-hmm. Did you find that there was an important factor in having a female mentor? Or did you get the same thing out of having male mentors before that? I never really thought of it, mm-hmm. frankly. I truly, and you know, from the bottom of, of my heart, uh, can't wait for this not to be a thing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I really, I can't believe, you know, this is almost 2020 and it's still a thing. Yeah. Why is this still a thing? Um, to me, there's no difference. Like mm-hmm. I, I look in my classroom and I will answer a question or help a student. And to me, every student is a student. Mm-hmm. Uh, every engineer is an engineer. Uh, yeah. there's, there, It should not be uh, an issue. And it was really in retrospect that I realized that Kathy Krieber was known the only yeah. woman mentor. Uh, and I think it's just a question of critical mass. There are not that many women in yeah. engineering, especially in the older generations. So it's probably you know, the different types of people that you might meet or that mm-hmm. you might connect with uh, as you go. And I'm hoping that uh, for your career and as you go forward, 
that you will be just as comfortable and mm -hmm. just as well supported uh, throughout anything that you do, regardless of you know, whether you have green mm -hmm. hair or no, yeah. it, it really all of this should not matter as long as you are competent and mm -hmm. capable of doing the work. Yeah, mm -hmm. you're completely right. For sure. Like you said, so you fell in love with teaching. And I wanted to congratulate you on recently mm -hmm. receiving the Frank Knox Award for Excellent in Teaching. Mm, um, no, we have to make a, a little <laughs> asterisk there. It's an honorable mention. Okay. I'm not the winner. Uh, the winner this year is a professor from uh, biology, who is an awesome professor. Um, it's a privilege to be okay. uh, receiving the, the honorable mention. Mm -hmm. But yes, it's an honorable <laughs> mention. Well, congratulations. <laughs> Thank you so much. Um, so what does teaching chemical engineering and students and future chemical engineers mean to you? It is so important and so inspiring to have all of these young, amazing brains in my class. To me, teaching is the opportunity to really see those connections and those little lights come on mm -hmm. and to go beyond just, you know, implement the formula. You Engineering is such a requirement for application of complete solutions that I think that my job is to put the framework and the context around everything that you have to learn. Mm -hmm. And it's such an intense program and you have so much stuff that we need to <laughs> basically expose you to and sort and organize yes. and understand uh, that if I can help uh, in any way that I can to kind of make sense mm -hmm. of uh, all of this theory and data and put it into the application of science, then it's you know, my little contribution towards that. Um, it's a lot of fun, actually, to be yeah. involved and to have the opportunity to see from the perspective of those young people, because it forces me to stay current. It forces me to constantly rethink, you know, okay, so I explained it this way, but mm, didn't quite go, what else can I do? And how else can I say this or put this into a slide that will actually create that picture in your, mm -hmm. in your brain? And so it, the work is never done. And um, and because of that, then it's you no, know, it's kind of a ball that's rolling, and yeah. it's it's fun and it's motivating, and and then you no, know, the semester ends, and then we start another one. So I feel that um, yeah, it's it's just like you no know, in research, I might have a few centuries of work to do, and mm -hmm. I think in teaching, maybe within a century or so, I might be satisfied <laughs> with finally giving a class that said yes, that's exactly how I can do this, and it's you no. Know, it's as clear as it can be. Yeah. Well, you're so good at it. I can speak from my own personal experience in your class. I loved your classes. So. Thank you. <laughs> what, do you have a unique perspective on how you teach? I guess I kind of know, but on, on your point of view? I think I want to make sure that we go back to kindergarten. Mm -hmm. Remember how fun it was? <laughs> how, I mean, look at like a, a five-year-old that can be just absolutely enthralled just doing finger painting for an entire <laughs> afternoon or discovering how, uh, how jello actually gels. As kids, we have this immense capability to be no surprised and mm -hmm. amazed and excited and enthused for about anything. And I think that school beats this out of us uh, pretty well. So my goal 
And really, my only goal is to present material in a fun and an enthusiastic way such that it becomes alive. Mm-hmm. Because if you come to class and you're already tired, and and really, I mean, you have sometimes eight or ten hours of sitting in the classroom in one day. And I feel terrible for <laughs> students, really, uh, because... I might have the opportunity to um, be in front of the class for maybe 45 minutes that day. Uh, So if I can bring the energy and bring some of that spark of interest back, I think that will help. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I really don't care if uh, if I tell a joke that the students think is very bad. Uh, <laughs> if I can if I can get students basically to uh, look up from their cell phone mm-hmm. and to actually pause for a moment and think, mm-hmm. and then we might be able to transmit some knowledge. Uh, I don't think it's unique. I think it's just one thing that I know I can do. I, mm-hmm. I know that I can be enthusiastic. Uh, so I, no, I'm not the the brightest or the the most capable uh, of all profs. But I can be enthusiastic, and I'm hoping that this fun translates into a little bit of an easier passage of the communications mm-hmm. and the knowledge. It's very interactive as well. Yeah. I know a lot of mm-hmm. your slides, you or you'll have uh, booklets that go with the slides where you can yep. write in. And I, th- I think that it keeps you listening and then it keeps the students learning a little bit more, even if they think they're not. So I definitely appreciated that. <laughs> um, since you were in part of the academia and um, education field um, for a while, what changes have you experienced as a woman working in academia over the years, especially in recent years? There are certainly more women, especially in chemical engineer, than mm-hmm. there used to be. And I, I referred to you know, that critical mass. I think we're now past the point where there are enough of both genders that you can now be an individual and you don't have to kind of represent your entire gender when you make a decision. Mm-hmm. That's a huge change. And I think it's now accepted in such a way that, and I'm hoping that as a young woman in engineering, when people around you or somebody new that you meet is asking you, well, what are you doing? What are you working on? What, what are you studying? Uh, and if you're saying that you're studying engineering, uh, you're not going to receive that uh, condescending mm-hmm. or, or surprised, uh, oh my God, there are women who do this. <laughs> um, that it's um, kind of the response would be of, of interest and curiosity about what you do rather than, mm-hmm. uh, oh my God, you know, uh, that no. Women, women shouldn't be doing this. Or as many times when I was younger, uh, the comments would be that um, I'm, in, I'm not in the right place or I am taking a spot away from a male who really would need to be mm-hmm. doing this and mm-hmm. that, uh, no, I, I will only work for a few years and have kids and say all of these very strange comments. <laughs> uh, so I really hope that as a young woman that you won't have to go through this Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not necessary. It's not helpful. So no, I would prefer to to see you, you know, go forth and have a great career and you know, choose whatever works for you without judgment from society. Mm-hmm. I think that's the biggest change. Uh, and then in terms of technology, there's just so many different approaches, and, mm-hmm. and that's just not academia. Just you know the difference, for example, between the time that I did my master's and the time that I started working on my PhD. 
uh, well, Google happened. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> so, so the um, kind of a, it's an explosion of information that uh-huh. we didn't used to be exposed to. And in some ways, I think it might make your learning journey a little bit more complex, hmm. more difficult to yeah. choose and determine what good information you know, is hidden among all of this mm-hmm. mess of mm-hmm. data that you are surrounded with. For sure. And there, there definitely is a lot more girls in engineering, at least here at Queen's. You can notice in the classroom, and I think they sometimes refer to chemeng as femeng. <laughs> yes, <laughs> we almost have parity, actually, in chemical engineering. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I have heard that not as many females will go out and necessarily pursue a career in engineering mm-hmm. after they graduate. Yeah. Um, why do you think that is? It's probably... In a matter of preferences, maybe we will not get parity in everything. Mm-hmm. Just the same as there's still a majority of women in nursing. Uh, there are still a majority of men who choose to go into mining, right. for example. In mining engineering, there's, there are fewer women mm-hmm. than in chemical engineering. And in some of the studies that, uh, for example, the Professional Engineers Ontario and the Canadian Engineering Association have done, mm-hmm. some of the career choices are related to uh, the degree to which uh, we perceive ourselves to be helpful. For a lot of engineers, the choice between going into uh, kind of a more computer, more electrical engineering, or even mechanical engineering, Mm -hmm. is more about uh, the machines rather than the people. Mm -hmm. And those decisions tend to also be related to gender, that more men will be interested in the machine and more women might be interested not only in the machine, but also in the effects that technology will have on the people around them. Mm -hmm. It might just be natural interest. It might be the way we're brought up uh, and then the influences of society. And most of the women uh, that go into engineering do so because they have a human interest in engineering, whereas most guys will go because they have a machine or a technical interest. Mm, And, And so that might influence the overall choice. And because of that, unless this fundamental makeup or the or that one parameter changes, mm-hmm. we might find that we still have you know, fewer women in electrical engineering than in biochemical engineering. Mm-hmm. No, if we go further than just chemeng, yeah. go into the bio side of things, you have yes. even more women there. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. I'm in bio, so yeah. there's mm-hmm. a lot more girls in bio. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, and what do you think for the next, like, five, ten years, you think that's going to maybe keep changing and more girls will get into the computer stuff? I'm hoping so, because there are a number of initiatives looking at, you know, uh, girls in coding and trying to bring um, uh, not just women, but also like more people into the STEM fields, because we need more brains into this field. Mm -hmm. I don't know if the the proportion of men and women will change that much. Mm -hmm. It would be nice, but no, it also has to be out of interest, out of choices, mm-hmm. uh, and you know, in parallel to that, the last thing that I would want to hear is that uh, you only got this job because you're a girl. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. So no, there's there's yeah. a balance there as to, yes, we want to make sure that it's open and welcoming to everyone uh, because then that's our best hope of getting the best brains in the right places. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. What advice would you give to young women looking at going to engineering or thinking about getting their master's or PhD? 
Oh, well, I'll start with the undergrad because mm-hmm. that starts really early. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, because of our education system, we need to start really young. And, um, and I still do. I go into high schools and talk to young students mm-hmm. about uh, their path and the, the types of obstacles that they're going to be facing. When you are very young and just starting to you know, look into grade 9, grade 10, mm-hmm. it's very easy to get discouraged with some of the science topics. Yeah. Um, because it requires a certain rigor to, like, to do all your math problems and mm-hmm. to actually figure it out. And uh, it's often the first obstacle that students encounter. You know, the first time that, no, nah, school was really easy and all of a sudden you get into a math class or a chemistry class and all of a sudden it's not so easy. Mm-hmm. And if you don't apply and put the effort into it then, it could very well be that you'll close the door entirely to a prospect of a STEM type career. So that that's really sad. Mm-hmm. I mean, you're you're there. You're you have no idea, yeah. and, and people keep asking you, "What do you want to do when you grow up?" You <laughs> have no idea, and I really wish we should stop asking this question because yeah. we don't know. I still don't know what I'll do when <laughs> I grow up. Uh, so you're in grade nine, and you're flunking math, and uh, and some career counselors uh, are very good, and others might just tell you, "Well, you're just not smart enough," mm. and that's a horrible thing to yeah. to say. <laughs> <laughs> and um, and basically you shut the door there and it might take a lot of effort and a lot of time to recover from that mm-hmm. just to have the opportunity to apply to you know, a science program mm-hmm. or an engineering program. Mm-hmm. So that's the first thing. We need to actually engage the students from like very, very first mm-hmm. uh, years of high school to make sure that you know, this is worth putting the effort right now mm-hmm. here such that the doors remain open such that you can make that decision later on and then when you're into the you know, first year or second year of uh, your undergrad in engineering and all the students around you had good marks in high school and all are reasonably intelligent and certainly as intelligent as you are mm-hmm. uh, but you're having difficulty and this happens every year. You know, despite our best efforts, we'll have students who you know, don't pass uh, a class in second or third year. And it's very, very hard mm-hmm. to get beyond that and to realize what you need to do um, to be successful. Uh, so it's a constant struggle. And, and the, uh, yeah, the intern program is hard. Yes. And, <laughs> and it has to be because there's a lot of stuff that you need to learn. Yeah. Uh, so having the, uh, the support and the opportunity to realize that it's possible and that there might be a few different things to do in your studies, in your approach to work, all of this is constant work and constant effort. And uh, it requires a lot of, uh, of support you know, from mm-hmm. families, from friends around you uh, to be successful and to have the opportunity really, again, you know, to complete your undergrad. And then you say, OK, now I can look for a job. And engineering is a good kind of all around you know, you, you come out of your undergrad uh, pretty much like all singing, all dancing. <laughs> and uh, <Yeah>. <laughs> and uh, oh, I, I remember that, okay, so apparently I'm qualified as an engineer. I feel I know nothing. <laughs> yeah. um, okay, so what do I do with the little bits that I know? Uh, and, um, and then you realize that um, all of what you've worked on has allowed you to figure out solutions. Mm-hmm. 
and um, and talk and work with people so that you can actually figure things out. Yeah. Uh, and you can figure things out in a bank uh, investment side. You mm-hmm. can be a project manager. You can go into business with no complementary training that will all mesh in with what you did in engineering because yeah, engineers know. We apply math to mm-hmm. solve problems, and that's pretty much all you need. After that, it's a question of specialization. Mm-hmm. So to move into uh, what I would tell a student to go into a master's degree, my colleagues are not going to like my answer. <laughs> so you have this no super bright student who's doing well in their undergrad and um, might come to me and say, I'd like to do a master's degree. Great, wonderful. We need grad students. We need good people to work through new problems mm-hmm. in the lab and in the computers. And, and what I'm going to say to this student is go work. <laughs> <laughs> and then my, my faculty colleagues are going to say, no. <laughs> um, so you've been at school all of this time. You've now finished your undergrad. Mm-hmm. Go work because you're going to learn different things at work and you're going to figure things out and realize exactly where you might want to specialize, Mm -hmm. either through gaining experience in the workplace or maybe in a few years realizing a master's degree that will allow me to understand no sustainability Mm -hmm. would be really useful and then I could be more competent in this aspect and continue working for this company or, Mm -hmm. or start my own consulting business and so I think that there are students who are certainly ready right after their fourth year to go into grad school. Yeah. And that's fine. I'm, I'm, I'm not going to say no, absolutely. <laughs> uh, but my first instinct would be go work for a few years and then figure out exactly what will keep you passionate. Because once you get into grad school, you're going to wake up thinking about that problem. You're going to fall asleep thinking <laughs> about it. You're going to mm-hmm. have nightmares about it. <laughs> and that's all that's going to be in your brain for two years mm-hmm. for a master's. So it has to be something of interest. Mm-hmm. And in engineering in Canada, there is still that perception hmm, that PhDs are not very practical people. Mm. And that stereotype is really difficult to dislodge. Um, I don't think I'm more of a nerd now that I have a PhD than I was a nerd <laughs> before. Uh, <laughs> Yet the my employability as a PhD is very very narrow compared to uh, the experience that I had in my last job in the military. I was a director of engineering. I had a large staff. I had mm-hmm. many different you know projects and different uh, um, shops to look after and aircrafts to repair and things. So that ability as a director of engineering, I still have. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I don't think I would be hired in that capacity now because I'm overqualified with a PhD. Yeah. And um, and that perception of the PhD changes depending on regions in the world. In Europe, a PhD is not so much perceived kind of negatively in mm-hmm. engineering as it might be in North America. Hmm. So we have, unfortunately, uh, let's say a, a candidate who has worked all through school, um, went from their undergrad into a master's that might have been promoted straight mm-hmm. into a PhD, comes out with a PhD of engineering but no work experience, mm. that person will have a heck of a time finding an initial job. There are some, yet it's, it's uh, difficult and in many ways more difficult 
to get that first job with your PhD mm-hmm. than to actually get a junior engineering position with your undergrad. And and that, I think, also has to be factored in. So when you do choose to, no, let's say you want to go back to school, you have to be aware of what repercussions this is going to have mm-hmm. in terms of how you are perceived by the market and the type of work that you want to do. Um, a PhD is very specialized, and um, there are not that many jobs available in academia. Mm. Uh, and it's just a numbers thing, right? Uh, you'll have uh, a professor working maybe 40 years during that time, training 10, 15, 20 uh, PhD candidates mm-hmm. that are all very good. Professor retires, there's room for one. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. And so when I train a PhD, I want to make sure that um, the type of abilities that we develop in that PhD are not just academic. Mm-hmm. They have to be in terms of uh, engineering communication, technical writing, uh, industry, uh, no expertise to communicate as a consultant, yeah. such that this very competent, very specialized engineer can find gainful employment and be happy doing mm-hmm. that, that type of work because it is a huge investment. So long yeah. answer, but yeah. <laughs> Great answer. Wow, mm-hmm. that's such good advice. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe I'll relate this to myself a little more. What about someone who is interested in a field, but like you said, you kind of come out of en- engineering, you're not sure what you know and if you know enough of it? And how would, like for me, I'm interested in environmental engineering, but I'm in You're chemical. asking for a friend. <laughs> <laughs> How do you start there? <laughs> yes. Interestingly, you know, as I was saying, you know, I, I really wish one day you know, being a woman or a man is not going to be a thing. Mm-hmm. Um, unfortunately, the question that you just ask and the way you ask it is very much a female concern. Mm. I hear more often from women, um, I don't know enough. I might not be qualified enough. What do I do to be more qualified or more yeah. uh, aware of the knowledge and Guys may ask this, but not so much. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And and so kind of the um, kind of the the feeling like you might be a bit of an imposter. Right. Imposter syndrome. Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I still have that, mm-hmm. um, and it's kind of balanced by your rational side, and I'm sure you have that too. Yeah. Where yes, no, I I completed this successfully. I I know that. You know, you passed this course. <laughs> you must know something about this. Uh, with, oh, gee, no, how am I ever going to figure this out? Um, so you have to work actively past this mm-hmm. and to look at, let's say, a job uh, description of something you're saying, no, I would like to do that, mm-hmm. and then sell your capabilities. Mm-hmm. So in that cover letter, <laughs> you're going to include something that describes, dear employer, you're looking for somebody with these qualifications. Yeah. Well, look at what's in my CV. And in summary, you know, I got this. I did that. And this was really well appreciated and, and, well, and really successful. Mm-hmm. So all of these, you can highlight and shine. And I can guarantee you, you can do the job. <laughs> um, I guess the only thing that's left is for you to convince yourself. Mm-hmm. You're right. Um, but yeah, my advice would be, you're probably more qualified than you think you are. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's great advice. Well, <laughs> thank you very much. <laughs> thank you so much for coming oh, and talking to us. Yeah, it was a great I'm glad time. It was what you needed. Yes. Yeah.